Let me tell you, as someone who grew up on the great islands of Hawaii, the food is definitely something wonderful. But in thinking about that, many places around the world have a unique cuisine or a style of cooking that should be explored and enjoyed whenever the opportunity arises. So I brought in an expert to explain food tourism. Welcome to the Just Dumb Enough podcast, a show that acknowledges no one is always an expert by dispelling common misconceptions with real experts. I'm your host as always, Colton Petrie. My guest today is Matthew Gray. Matthew grew up appreciating the art of cooking from his mother, and after exploring the rock and roll scene with the Eagles and Fleetwood Mac, he journeyed to London to study fine dining at a top culinary school. Among many more journeys, it all led to him opening a food tourism company in Honolulu, which ran for 16 glorious years before the pandemic unfortunately shut everything down. His experience offers unique perspective as a traveler and as an operator, giving us the best tips on how to get the most out of the food scene on any trip you take. Also, apologies for some weird audio difficulties. They should be all ironed out for future episodes, and they aren't terribly intrusive here. Remember, you can email dumbenoughpodcast at gmail.com or send a message on any of the social media pages to request or suggest future topics or guests. For now, let's try out some strange-looking food. Welcome to the show, Matthew Gray. Hey, thanks, Colton. Thanks for having me. I think, you know, we should probably have the... uh the recorder going during all the pre-radio show stuff because we just discussed a whole bunch of interesting things. <laughs> we did, and that's a fun little bit that the audience otherwise never gets to hear. I uh, know, but I, you were you were recording, but I don't know if you're going to add it in. It's okay. I've signed away all my rights, and uh, whatever you need to do with me, you just take care of it. <laughs> there you go. You all heard it. He said it's okay. That's right. All right. Well, thank you for being on the show. I do appreciate you being here. Thank you for reaching across not only uh, the continental United States, but also the Pacific Ocean to me all the way here in Honolulu. What a cool thing. Yes, from the mainland back to the islands. Yeah. Yeah, and that is a a weird terminology, I guess, I use that most people don't because I grew up uh, on Maui, so I call it the mainland. Wow, brah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so were you born here in Hawaii? Yeah, I was born, uh, well, I mean, I lived up in Makawao. Okay. Do you still come back for visits every now and again? Um, I was for a long time because I still had family there. Mm-hmm. But uh, I haven't visited in probably seven years. Well, I think it's time, Colton, now especially that you and I are connected. You know, I'm I'm a chef, an entrepreneur. I'm endlessly curious. Everything is about food, love, romance, sex, and sensuality related to taking care of people. So I will show you the town, man, and we'll have a great time. Yeah, absolutely. That would be a blast. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So how did you get into this? Like what brought you into, you know, all of the food field and this journalism and tourism and everything else that you do? Well, you know, I owned a company most recently called Hawaii Food Tours, which specializes in 
feeding, educating, and entertaining visitors to Hawaii. And we started that in 2004. We had a fantastic, famous 16-year run until the COVID crushed us in March of 2020. So I'm, I'm one of the many casualties out there in the world who really got hurt by the pandemic. Uh, prior to that, though, I fell in love with food when I was just a little kid. I used to watch my mom run around the kitchen cooking, and it just put me in a dream state when I'd watch her chopping and cutting and cooking, so much so that I wanted to see what was going on on top of the range. So I used our pet dog, Happy, as a step stool to step on to see what mom was cooking on top of the range. That was 150 pounds ago, by the way. <laughs> so uh, no animals were harmed in the filming of this. And, you know, just watching my mom kind of created and developed this wonderful feeling for architecture and color and aroma and plate plating and flavor and all that other stuff. Plus, I was in a family that sat down to eat when times were good and sat down to eat when times were not so good and then sat down to eat in every one of life's moments in between. So food was always the answer and became always the issue as we grow up and grow older. So uh, it's an interesting, wonderful and confusing aspect of our life for sure. Yeah, yeah but it probably gave you, you know, all the skills and the, the taste to actually cook when you grew older. Oh, yeah, I kind of understood a lot before I went to school because I did eventually go to school uh, in London to get my uh, grand diploma and at one of the, the top schools in the world, culinary arts school uh, called Cordon Bleu. Uh, and I did that at the ripe old age of 21 because prior to that, I was on the road with rock and roll bands. Uh, I was on the Eagles Hotel California tour. I was with Fleetwood Mac and Pink Floyd and people like that in a merchandising capacity doing the young young man drug sex and rock and roll tour learning about merchandising and learning about real life down on the ground and then when I became 21 or so I decided I can't live out of a suitcase anymore this is enough what am I going to do with the rest of my life and I thought since I had a knack for cooking maybe I would make that my profession and so I went to school, I earned the diploma, and everything in my life has been in one way or another connected to making people feel good through food or something very close to that. Yeah. So what are kind of the biggest things that people miss where you're like, I know you don't know a lot about food, but here's like the first thing that I can see you're just not appreciating about it. What I miss when I watch others, is that what you mean? Something to do with food? No, like when you see like a novice, like I'm just somebody who pushes food into my mouth and that's the end of it. Like what is the first thing I should be appreciating about it? Yeah, that is the perfect question. And uh, you are just dumb enough to ask that question. And I appreciate that. It's a great name for a show, by the way. One of the things that gets me, and I'll tell you about my pet peeves later, but one of the things that gets me about people and food is that people don't savor the flavor. They shovel food into their mouth, they eat it, and they enjoy their food, but they don't recognize flavor and they don't recognize nuance 
and the way that things are cooked and the styles and all of those other things. So I'll sit down at a restaurant and I'll just sit back. And first of all, I marvel at the people who are sitting across the table from their significant others and they're on their cell phones. And I think that is like, that's one of the worst things you could possibly do is to take your attention away from the person you're seated with looking at your cell phone and eating in a very unconscious way not paying attention to all the hard work that the people in the kitchen put together in sourcing your food prepping your food cooking your food and serving your food so i will just marvel at watching people eat because i know that they're not plugged in with the flavors yeah, I have heard like you are supposed to chew much slower than most of us do. Where they're like, you should actually be chewing on things because that's, you know, there's something like the enzymes or whatever it is in your mouth that actually start to change the flavor after, you know, a certain amount of time. Is that the case? That is partly the case. Also, the olfactory nerves. Uh, are going to definitely detect flavor a lot more. And the olfactory nerves are the, are the nerves that are seated right behind your sinuses and where your nose detects smell. So I don't know if you've ever heard this or tried this experiment, but if you hold your nose and plug your nose and taste something, you won't be able to taste it. You won't be able to get the true flavor. And once you can breathe, you can get the flavor. So flavor and being able to breathe correctly is definitely what's going to put the flavor on your tongue and in your mouth. So those systems all work together. And that's why when you have a cold, you can't taste anything because you can't breathe. So learning how to taste is something that takes some time. And it took me a lot of time uh, to learn after I became an apprentice, even after going to school for uh, a couple of years in London, I learned finally how to taste. Yeah, I've seen, you know, like, I think obviously most people have seen like ratatouille. And I'm like, man, I don't taste in color. Am I missing out on this? Like <laughs> Well, there are people who, there are, there are so-called super tasters, and super tasters can identify flavor from a mile away, so to speak. I mix metaphors riotously over here. But yeah, there are people who are super tasters, and there are people who can hear disease. And there are all these interesting, varied specializations and quirks that people have. So uh, people who understand flavor, they usually have a good nose on them. People who taste wine or coffee or anything like that are usually pretty clear in the way they breathe and they've learned how to do that so they can really identify and taste properly. Gotcha. So it sounds like, you know, a lot of the problem is that we are not breathing when we're eating. We're just like literally get the food in and down as fast as possible. Yeah, because you know that pizza is going to taste damn good. But if you slow down and pay attention and focus and breathe and allow the air through your nose to go over your taste buds where the food is, it'll be a whole new world of flavor for you. And you'll be able to enjoy whether it's a candy bar or a hamburger. It doesn't matter. If you can breathe well and breathe clearly, your food's going to taste better. Therefore, i.e., you'll have a more pleasant experience. Does it kind of work the other way? Like if you are eating something that, you know, everyone has told you is like truly awful and you stop to like take it in, do you start to realize how bad it is? Well, you know, when you get, when you get that kind of input from people, there's this power of suggestion that happens. So if someone says um, sea urchin, 
is disgusting or natto is disgusting at a, at a uh, sushi restaurant which is fermented soybeans some people have a taste for it and some people don't but the power of suggestion is definitely going to place people in a certain place and so it's always better to have a blind tasting and to just say try this tell me what you think about it instead of setting them up with a this is disgusting Colton what do you think about it so that's probably not the right way and it's probably not a real valid scientific way either to be able to test someone's opinion and so that's where scientific testing comes in differently and how things are done and funded I say kind of treat it like you're a kid and your parents are like here eat this and you're like what is it and they're like I'll tell you after you eat it Right. Or, you know, if, if you're trying to get a child to try something, you can you could say something like along the lines where mommy and daddy love this. Why don't you try it? And then that way you don't really have to explain too much more in detail. You just let them know that you like it. And chances are that the child will like it as well. Although there's a lot of cultural stuff, too, because stuff that we eat in the United States is, is what I call the standard American diet, the sad diet. Uh, is something we're all used to but if you go over to Southeast Asia and they serve you a plate of fried cockroaches or bugs or whatever and it tastes nutty and it's delicious um, it's fantastic until you find out what it is so as a chef and as a professional eater my entire life sometimes I really did not want to know ahead of time because I wanted to keep everything kind of clear in my head and be able to try it and then sense for myself and decide for myself. Yeah. Is there, I just thought about this, is there like one food where you're like, it's really hard to mess this up and it's really easy to always be good? Any of the real simple foods are very, very difficult to prepare and very difficult to make delicious. It's sort of like the game of checkers. It's the easiest game in the world to play and you and I would be playing with the same checkers and the same board and yet you might be a great player and I may not be. So the same thing counts with food. We could be given the same ingredients, you and I, Colton, and because I have technique and education and experience, I could take those same 10 ingredients and come up with something mind-blowing, whereas someone without the experience would just come up with a bunch of slop with the same exact ingredients and so that's why technique has so much to do with not only cooking but also psychology interaction conversation anything at all so I'm really a believer in technique even more than philosophy when it comes to doing things yeah, interesting and you would definitely I mean smoke me wouldn't even be the start of a competition <laughs> you know what the thing is when I when I was the restaurant critic for Hawaii's largest newspaper for several years, when I'd go out to restaurants, I was known to be the toughest restaurant critic in Hawaii. And sometimes if I gave a negative review, it wasn't because I wanted to be negative and it wasn't because I wanted to kick someone's ass in print, but it's because I have ethics and, you know, my responsibility was to explain my experience to the readers of my column and it was important because I knew that you'd be spending your hard-earned money and I didn't want you to go and blow your money at the restaurant so I would give my in-depth educated taste bud educated writers background as to what was good what to look out for what to try what to steer clear from 
and that was important to me. However, I didn't realize when I was first beginning uh, doing this fantastic job, which is being paid to eat in Hawaii. Can you think of anything more incredible than that? But the people in the ad department, who were not the editorial people like myself, they were not the writers, they were the people trying to sell ads to the restaurants, they hated me because occasionally I'd write a negative review and those would be the restaurants that my ad ad people would be trying to sell advertisements to and they would say, Matthew Gray gave us a bad review, why would we want to advertise with you? So that's where the editorial and the advertising department split. And so a lot of my coworkers were actually trying to run me over in the parking lot because they didn't want to have a tough restaurant critic working with them. So it's very interesting that if you split hairs, what you're going to find in professional life. Yeah, I mean, it's very much like you want to provide the best for the readers and the ad department wants to provide what's best for the business to make money. And those right. two are at odds at a certain point. They are at odds. You know, ethics is, is a fine line. And, um, you know, they're being paid, the advertising people are being paid to work on one side of that line. And me, as the critic, being paid to be uh, uh, on the other side of the ethics line and the arts line and so on. So, you know, my biggest concern before going into a restaurant to write a review of it would be, how am I going to get 1,000 words out of this experience? What do I have to look for? So I wouldn't be thinking about shrimp or pizza or fried calamari or sliders. I wouldn't be thinking about the food because I'd get to the food eventually. But I'd have to like begin my review, at least in my head, uh, from the moment I arrived. If there was a valet, if there was a hostess, how I was served, how the glassware would play, be placed on the table and all of the things that most people don't expect when they walk into a restaurant. They just think they'll be shown to the table and then the, the game begins, but that's not how it works in real life. So those were the things that I would explain as, as closely to detail as I could. Yeah. So what prompted the changeover where you were like, you know, you're writing about all this and you were telling people the experience and then you decided like, I'm just going to take this hands-on. I'm going to show people the right places. Being a writer, even long before I was a restaurant writer, uh, really helped me because the creative aspect, the output of being able to put pretty words together in a string and entertain people through my words uh, was a definite good combination for me and a nice natural tr uh, transition from being an educated foodie a person who loved food, a person who wrote a lot, and I was able to bring all of that together. And it just was one thing after another that all kinds of, now when I look back at it, it all really tied well together. So there were no times in my life where I just said, I'm going to not do this anymore. I'm going to start that. Except when I was the restaurant critic, I got bored of that. I told people, I'm going to leave the newspaper business and I'm going to start up a food tour company. So I had to come out of the shadows because I was invisible. People didn't know who I was. They didn't know my identity. They knew my name. They saw it in print. I had my following and so on, but I was invisible because the restaurants back in the day used to have a wall where they'd have photographs of the restaurant critics from various different newspapers and television shows and, and radio and all that. So I didn't want my identity to be known. But finally, after years of doing that, 
I decided I wanted to get out there and I wanted to meet the people and I wanted to hold them and hug them and show them the good food and feed them and talk to them about the culture and the history and all of the great things about food that I grew up with. So I was able to come full circle, do the technical professor type stuff, and then finally get into the real human stuff with the uh, the Hawaii food tours. Yeah, which is awesome. And I might, you know, have you explain like Hawaiian food is not the same as what you'd find here on the mainland. It is kind of its own thing. It is its own thing. It has a huge Asian kind of sensibility to it that's mixed in with a lot of American type stuff. But then there's the Hawaiian aspect and influence. So the foods are... Yeah, I mean, not from planet Mars, but it's definitely going to be different than the foods you might get in uh, Philadelphia or in New York or in Los Angeles or so on. So once again, because you have someone like me who's taking you by the hand, I can explain a lot of this stuff to you and then introduce you to the foods. You go, wow, this is pretty darn good. But my Hawaii food tours was more of an explanation and the backstory of the history of the people and the culture and where the foods came from and why they were there. Uh, and that really helps people appreciate stuff. When you get the backstory, when I learn about you, I'm going to appreciate you more. And when I learn about X, Y, or Z food, I'm going to appreciate that food more. So people come in with their preconceived notions. Like we heard that spam is really popular in Hawaii. Well, that's true. And some people have a preconceived notion that spam is canned meat and it's no good and it's crappy and this and that. And it's okay for people to have their opinions. But if you're going to go on a food tour, you got to at least try a bite of everything that's offered your way because that's part of the cultural way that we mix. And how else will you know if you like something unless you try it? So that's where I come from. I don't force food down anyone's throat. I just try to persuade them give it a shot. And then when I come to visit you, I'll try something that I've never tasted. And, you know, it's a fair exchange that way. Yeah, I think there are like two good examples I have, you know, from growing up in Hawaii, where it's like, I learned to make katsu there. And I had no idea until much later that katsu is Japanese. And I'm like, oh, I didn't know. It's just a thing we made in Hawaii is very popular. The other one is like with tourism over there, a lot of people want to try poi. And I'm like, yeah, poi's fine. And then they're like, well, everyone talks about it. It's only in Hawaii. And then they try it and they're like, this is uh, not what I had in mind. And I'm like, we, I mean, yeah, it's a root. I don't know what you were anticipating eating, but it's not like a fine delicacy of the islands that, you know, you're going to have a flavor unlike anything else. You're like, it's, it's a root. You know, <laughs> it, it is. It's a paste. It's a root. It's a starch. It's it's meant to be eaten alongside something else, like the way you might not eat mashed potatoes on the U.S. mainland as your primary meal, but there's nothing wrong with mashed potatoes next to your cutlet or next to your steak. And so that's the way that I try to explain poi. However, the whole tradition of poi is pretty fantastic. The way that it's grown there and the way that it is pounded and the traditions of all of that. And you mentioned katsu. Nowadays, every Japanese restaurant in the world has katsu, which is basically a cutlet, usually a pork cutlet or a chicken cutlet that's battered and fried. But katsu coating is made from something called um, 
punko crumbs, which is a light flaky crumb, almost like a cornflake versus breadcrumbs, which are more coarse. And everybody, how could you not like a battered and fried piece of meat? Come on. Everybody loves that. So it's a cultural thing. Once you learn about it, you go, this is pretty damn good. And you're right. Poi does work really well against the smoky, juicy, shredded pork, which is just pork shoulder. In the U.S. mainland, you know, they cook pork shoulder all the time. They call it pulled pork. Well, it's not that different here in Hawaii. We cook it underground sometimes and is a bit more pomp and circumstance and just throwing it on a pot like you might on the U.S. mainland. But it's basically the same thing, a pork shoulder, pork butt, same same meat, different word. And the flavors are immense and, and delicious. You just have to give yourself a chance to try stuff. Yeah, so when you're showing people this tourism, obviously, like you said, you give a lot of history and you kind of educate people about what's going on and you know, how that's done and why you should appreciate this you know, in its own aspect, do you kind of only cover like the Hawaiian staple, like the unique things they're going to get there? Or do you take them through like, this is also, we have, you know, one of the best sushi places or the steakhouses, like all of those as well? I do. Uh, because I am a food guy and because I have written it, I've written a book called The Ultimate Eater's Guide to Hawaii. I talk about all different kinds of food because I didn't grow up in Hawaii. I was born in New York my family moved to L.A. when I was 10 years old. They didn't tell me right away, but I caught up with them eventually. And then I moved to Hawaii in 93. So because I have this background and this history and experience of eating everything from all over the world, that's how I am able to be such a good host when you come to Hawaii. So I'm not going to only push Hawaiian food. I'm going to suggest to you that you try uh, a seafood place or a Thai place, or a Vietnamese place, or Nonya cuisine, or Malaysian cuisine, because we have all of these wonderful flavors. And so I'm here not to push Hawaiian food. I'm here to push food and understanding and flavor. And I'd like to teach people how to taste, and I want to turn you on to the latest and the greatest. So, you know, my Hawaii food tours are all-encompassing, because if you dig eating, and who doesn't? you're going to have a great time because I'm going to tell you this story and I'm going to share stuff about my life and I'm going to share stuff about their life and the history of the islands. So it's a real all-encompassing uh, encompassing kind of experience for people. So food tours are something that really started not too long ago. I was the second food tour in the United States when I started in 2004 and now every major city throughout the world has one or more food tours connected to it. So we were one of the pioneers and like I said, had a great run. And um, because of COVID, things got a little bit crazy in this part of the world, but I'm able to help other people who wanna try their entrepreneurial hand at starting a food tour because they know that they have something they wanna share. And that's the great part about being an entrepreneur, being somebody who recognizes flavor and wants to be with the people because there's nothing better than hanging out, sitting across the table from you and talking about food and drink and enjoying a meal together. How how much better of a way is there to learn about somebody, you know? Yeah, and I've you know, I've been fortunate enough to travel with the show and meet people and some of the best experiences I have are like sitting across the table at a place I would have never visited that is not like, you know, in uh, San Jose. Like they are not known for their Japanese cuisine, I don't think. 
but when I was there, like that's where we stopped and we ate and it was great. And like, it really builds, you know, in your mind, it helps build a fuller memory when you're like, oh yeah, it also smelled nice and it tasted nice and the people were nice. Like it all comes together. It does come together. And Colton, you know how you were saying that you'll taste something and it will bring you back 20 years to your grandmother's house her apple pie it'll stimulate memories from your past and that's another part of that whole brain thing that's working with aroma the olfactory nerves and things like that and that's why you can just smell while you're driving and you'll be transported back to your first visit to McDonald's because McDonald's has a smell and um, grandma's pie has a smell. Your mom's spaghetti sauce has a certain aroma to it. And that's what's so amazing about the brain. So it's not just about this instant gratification, but it's about all the things that are going on in your heart and your soul and your, your olfactory senses and things like that. And so that's what all comes together when we're talking about food when we're sharing food because is there anything more intimate than a stimulating engaging conversation over good food and drink i think not and i love this like the food tourism because i can think about it you know and i can rationalize it to like where i am now right because i'm unfortunately not in hawaii but just north of me is a very large city called portland that many people are aware of and it has like this humongous food truck scene and so that has become their version of like food tourism is you just take, you know, like a large trip around the food truck venue and you can get food from all different styles. And it's like, yeah, that's how you do food in Portland. Exactly. And, you know, I meet people all the time for all these years. I've always met people who travel the same way I do. So in the old days before the internet, when I would travel and I would, let's say, be going to London or Barcelona, I would read all the guidebooks in the world and I would try to find out, you know, a handful of great restaurants. I wanted to kind of pre-plan. Where am I going to eat breakfast? Where will I want to go for lunch? What will I want to try for dinner? Because you can always go to the cathedrals and the museums and the shows and this and that. But the one thing you can't really always do is hit the right restaurants. So a lot of my research always went into how am I going to satisfy the taste buds? Because if you don't get a good meal, you get a little bit or at least I do. And I don't want to turn into that person. I want to have something yummy every day to look forward to because the sights and sounds will all be there. But it's the food that really gets you going and energizes you into each and every day. Yeah. And is that kind of like a best practice? Anytime you are going somewhere, you're like, highly recommend just look up places that are popular in that area. Or do you also like you land and you're like, let me pick a brain like who's local around here that I can kind of ask questions to? Oh, yeah. You know, you have to combine all of your various skills and abilities and your investigative parts of your world. Nowadays, with the Internet, you have every restaurant in the world is right here on your cell phone anytime you want. And hopefully you're in a part of town where you can uh, call aside a local and, you know, in your in your best broken Spanish or Dutch, ask them where a good place to go is and just try stuff. The way that I've always eaten when I've traveled is I never order my entire meal when I sit down, although restaurants really want you to. When I owned my own restaurant, you know, my wait staff was always instructed to get the entire order. But that's uh, that's not the way that I practice. When I go into a restaurant, 
I order one dish at a time and I'll taste it and I'll see where I'm at. And if it's not quite up to what I was hoping for and I, I'm experiencing a little bit of what I call diner's remorse, I'll say thank you very much. I'd like to pay now and then we go to the next restaurant and we'll try something from there. So if you know, if it's not right right from the beginning, you just push push yourself away from the table and walk and go to another place because there's a lot of different restaurants out there and everyone's got an individual kind of flair and, and specific notion as to how food should be presented. Same thing in, in Vegas. When I go to Vegas and I sit down at a blackjack table or or a craps table, if I'm not hot right away or if I lose three hands in a row I push myself away and I walk to the next table because if you're not hot you don't want to play and if a restaurant's not serving good food right from the beginning you just push yourself away pay and go away and still be friends yeah so it's a good yeah it's, it's a good I think it's a good philosophy you know there's just like there are a lot of fish in the sea there are a lot of restaurants out there and there are a lot of people that you can meet by doing that yeah, I think that's actually a really good practice that I've never considered because so often we sit down and we're like, yeah, let's get appetizers for everyone and also here's the meals that we want to eat. And then you're sitting there at the end of it and you're like, man, this was uh, not a great food option. And you kind of like, you know, generally blame the person that like brought you there. You're like, why'd you bring us here? Right. And then also, you know, if you order everything in advance and you're on your apps, and your entrees have already been fired. You know, they've been prepared. They're sitting under heat lamps. And then when they arrive at your table after sitting under heat lamps for 20 minutes, you go, hey, this isn't warm. This isn't hot. This isn't the way it should be. It's not fresh. And so that diner's remorse kicks in. So you're the customer. You order at your pace. Don't order everything at once. That way you know that when the food does come out, it's going to be as hot and as fresh as possible. Yeah, I think that's probably something a lot of people don't know is like there is a delay. If you have all of your stuff on the table from your appetizers, I guess they don't just like walk all the rest of your food out and be like, hey, move stuff. I got to put your plates down. Right. And you know that feeling that you get when you go into a restaurant, you feel rushed because you can see that the waiter is looking at his or her watch, knowing that your entrees are sitting under the heat lamps and you guys are only halfway through your bread and your pate or whatever. And so they're a little bit conflicted because they want to get you the food right away. And you're conflicted because you're feeling rushed and you don't want to be rushed because you're in a restaurant. And this is a time for us to talk. This is a time for us to share. Sometimes it's important stuff. So that's why only order on your time. This is your night. This is your meal. And, you know, you'll get around to it. Sure, it takes a few minutes to prepare, but that's what wine is for or a cocktail or just conversation. You take your time before the entree comes out fresh. Yeah. And this, like maybe you have the insider knowledge that I'll ask about, even though it's not quite on topic. There are from what I remember, and I'm reaching deep into my brain here, I believe some French restaurants that do like multiple meals. Like you're going to be here for several courses. I cannot imagine the stress of having to like be in the, the kitchen and be like, okay, I have to time these perfectly so that I can get each and every one of these courses out to you when there's like, you know, what, five or more, I assume. There are places that are called molecular gastronomy and molecular gastronomy is more of an art related 
aspect to preparing food and it's where food is really really beautiful artistically done maybe with foams or gums or various different products to make it look just gorgeous and yeah a lot of times it can taste fantastic but it could be 10 courses could be 20 courses my wife and I went to Barcelona back in 2015 and we found a restaurant she found the restaurant called Disfrutar and this restaurant nowadays all these years later earned a Michelin star or two Michelin stars which is way at the top of the grading scale for restaurants but when we went there they were just a really great restaurant experimenting with all of their artistic abilities and I think it's something that everybody should try just because it's mind-blowing they'll show you something that looks like something you recognize, but then when you pop it in your mouth, you go, oh my God, this is not black olives at all. It tastes like, you know, strawberries. Or So they play with your mind. They play with your visuals. They play with what you're expecting. It's kind of a psychological kind of influential way of eating. And I really think it's fun to be able to be involved in the artistic aspect of at least trying a well-known place that's doing molecular gastronomy at least once in your life. Then you can go to McDonald's and wash it all down after. <laughs> yeah, they're like, we're here to usurp your expectations. <laughs> exactly. So, um, you know, when I, when I was growing up and I was first starting at restaurants, there was something called Nouvelle Cuisine, and that's French cuisine served in little tiny portions, just beautiful-looking things on your plate. And that was all fancy-schmancy, overpriced stuff, and only people with a lot of money could afford that kind of thing. But I was trained to do that. So if somebody wanted to spend $30 for a little tiny mouthful of food that was their decision you and I would go to a place down the road and get an entire meal for that same price but it all depends on 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 the clientele and what they're used to and what they want and the buzz that's going on and what the media is saying so it's always best pretty much to rely on a buddy who you really trust or your own taste buds to decide for yourself so when I was restaurant critiquing uh, for the paper, people got to know me because they tried the restaurants I wrote about. And then after a while, they go, ah, we can trust Matthew. Just like with film critics. In the old days, they used to have film critics who would write about movies, and you would kind of find people who you jibed with and you would see okay this person has a similar personality or sense of humor and you could kind of trust that person so if you can find people in your life along the way who you trust in food medicine film arts etc clothing then that's really a great way to start and kind of step into the life of all your choices I love the mental picture of someone being like, all right, time to find out if we can trust Matthew. This last one was good. He said this next one's bad. Let's go find out if it's bad. Exactly. And, you know, that happened. And I would, and that was really cool back in the day, you know, when you were doing critique, uh, people would write to you. And, you know, I would get emails and, and we would get letters to the editor and stuff like that. And for the most part, you know, you're doing your job if your readership is digging you and loving you. And the restaurants sometimes are not because you just were really, really clear, articulate and honest and you know when you've got integrity that's what you do that's just part of the world so any other kind of misconceptions that you've run into when people talk about you know trying restaurants or 
touring an area, like anything that really stands out where you're like, that's a, a grave mistake. Well, it's a great mistake to go anywhere and eat at anything that's familiar to you from where you live. So the reason I'm going traveling, besides being able to drink in the culture and the architecture and meet new people and speak new languages, is to try the food. So you don't want to step off the airplane waving your Olive Garden coupon and asking where to go to find the Olive Garden. So I always say no chain restaurants. See if you can put off a little bit of the whole familiarity stuff from back home because you're going to go back home in two weeks anyway. And right now, immerse yourself in my culture. You'll be safe. I'll take care of you. Try this. Taste this. Drink this. We'll go have some fun. And just, you know, being a chameleon, allowing yourself to kind of blend into your surroundings is what's so important when you travel. Yeah. I love that. I think it's great. And I think that's a good tip to leave people on. I wanted to give some time so that you could kind of plug, you know, where people can find you if they're looking to find more of you. If someone wants to find me, I'm happy to, to give them my time. If you want to go to my, one of my websites is hawaiifoodtours.com. And if you Google Matthew Gray Hawaii, you'll see thousands of pages and reviews on what I've done and stories that I've written. And um, now for these past three years, since COVID has become a thing and because the worldwide health condition is getting worse and worse. I become a health coach, helping people get off of their medicines, how to reverse disease. Um, just for instance, Colton, when was the last time you went to a doctor and that doctor asked you, what do you eat on a day-by-day -day basis? Probably never. It just yeah. doesn't happen, right? And that's sad as let's just say sad AF because doctors don't get nutritional training and that's why people like myself who know the food world and know the flavor world and know the people world kind of come full circle and I believe that instead of uh, eating to live I think living to eat um, is something that I used to do now eating to live is really important so I've come full circle I'm off medications I've lost a bunch of weight I help people with their diets I help them get off of their medication and that's another thing I'm happy to help out because a lot of people who are listening to us right now know that they're eating the wrong food and they don't want to be on the medications they're taking and they need to be able to trust somebody and I've been through the wars and I've come out the other side so that's my biggest takeaway from from our conversation is to be able to offer myself to help others how to kind of tweak your diet and your nutrition and how to understand your health yeah a good veteran consultant of many fields Right, sure. Why not? When you've lived as long as I have, you kind of get to do a lot of different things. So I've lucked out. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> well, I have appreciated your time immensely. Next time I'm in Hawaii, which hopefully I'll, I'll come back soon, I will have to hit you up and be like, okay, show me around. What are we doing? You know, I look forward to that. Some of my best friends in the world were people who came here for the first time to go on to my, one of my food tours. And now all these many years later, whenever I travel to the Netherlands or Spain or France, anywhere in Europe, around the United States, I get to sit down with my buddy Colton and sit down and break bread and enjoy and cook together. And nothing brings me greater satisfaction than to be able to be with folks I really care about and to enjoy something good to eat. That's awesome. Thank you again for doing this. Thank you for having me, man. I hope that we stay in touch.
Do you feel more informed having listened to this episode of the Just Dumb Enough podcast? If so, please take a brief moment to rate the show five stars on iTunes, Spotify, Audible, or wherever else you're listening from. If you really liked it, remember to subscribe for more episodes and check out the nearly 100-episode backlog. Let me know what you'd like to hear in the future by reaching out and emailing me, dumbenoughpodcast at gmail.com, or send a message to any of the show pages on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or wherever else. I'm always looking for new topics, guest ideas, and questions from the audience. That's it for this week. Enjoy your weekend, and I will see you all Monday the 19th as we learn to not just write new chapters in our lives, but also new books. Bye bye.